Hi, and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on The State of Shakespeare, we have Nick Newlin. Hi, Nick. Hi, how are you? Excellent, excellent. Nice to be here. Good to have you. Nick Newlin is the author of The 30-Minute Shakespeare. Nick has a BA from Harvard University, an MA in theater with an emphasis on play directing from the University of Maryland. Since 1996, Nick has been conducting an annual teaching artist residency with the Folger Shakespeare Library in D.C. He's preparing an English class of D.C. public school students for performance in the Folger's annual Student Shakespeare Festival. Newland's work with the Folger Education is part of a grant from the NEA, Shakespeare for a New Generation. He has 19 books in print as part of the 30-minute Shakespeare series. Many of his students have performed these at the Folger Shakespeare Festival. Nick also performs a variety show for young people called the Niccolo Whimsy Show. Nick, so glad to have you here. I'm very glad to be here as well. So tell us about how you came to generate the 30-minute Shakespeare idea. Well, I had been doing this variety show, the Nicola Whimsy Show, at Renaissance fairs around the country for about a decade, and I still do that. It's a juggling act with, with music and audience participation. It's sort of an Elizabethan setting, as it were. And after about 10 years of that, I decided that I needed a change, and I went to grad school in theater, University of Maryland. And when I got out, my mom, Louisa Newland, had been working with the Folger, and she had been doing a project. There was a student Shakespeare festival that she had started. And she had also done some work in the schools. And since her son now had a degree in theater, she kind of handed the reins of this project off to me. And I started working in the D.C. public schools as a teaching artist. Basically, the idea is I go into an existing English class of high school students between ninth and 12th grade. And I walk in and say, hello, everybody. We're going to do a Shakespeare play. At which point you get a lot of blank looks. (laughs) But then you get the students up on their feet. We start playing games like tossing insults or stomping words, just kind of action-y, fun activities to get the words in your mouth and the feeling in your body. And from there, we rehearse in class maybe once a week for a month or so and then ease it into a couple of times a week for the next month. And then maybe the final month of the project, you come in two or three times a week. So you're doing most of your work in class. And the culmination is a 30-minute version of a Shakespeare play at a student Shakespeare festival at the Folger Library in D.C. Each school does a 30-minute performance of a play. They vary. Sometimes they do a mashup of scenes. Sometimes a group will do a whole long scene. But I always liked to tell the story of the play because I think there's something that happens between the beginning of the story and the end of the story to a character. And I just like the idea of of trying to get the story. Trying to get the arc. Trying to get the arc. So I picked between four and eight key scenes, and I've cut them down but while keeping the language. And then we just kind of cast them in the classroom and rehearse them. And after about 10 years of doing this project, I realized I had some really nice cuttings of Shakespeare plays with stage directions that I know that English teachers simply don't have the time to put in that kind of work, to have a performance-ready piece that you can use in the classroom. So I spoke with my brother, Bill Newland, who is in the publishing industry, and he immediately leapt into action and assembled me a freelance staff and a distributor. And before I knew it, I was in the publishing business. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's been a really fun project. I've been going about five years. And as you say, I have 18 plays out in print. And then last year, I put out a monologue book. I call it the uh, 30-Minute Shakespeare Anthology. 18 student scenes with monologues. So basically, all of these plays were born directly out of performances that originated in a classroom 
spectrum of non-actors in the D.C. public school system. Well, how did that influence your cutting? I mean, 30 minutes is not a lot for a whole Shakespeare play. (laughs) It's fascinating to me that as we perform the plays, you realize that there's really quite a lot you can do in 30 minutes. There's a lot of great material in that 30 minutes. And sure, you have to cut out several scenes and even some characters, but you really do get a meaty piece of Shakespeare in that time frame. You have to make some tough decisions. For example, when we did Twelfth Night, which is my favorite Shakespeare play, I had to cut out the Malvolio piece with the yellow stockings cross-garter because it just didn't fit with the cast and the play. You have to make oh. some decisions, and, and you stick with them because otherwise you're going to drive yourself crazy. You could do three or four versions of one play, I imagine. Well, that's an interesting idea, actually. You could come back and say, well, my Twelfth Night didn't have a few scenes that I want. Let's do another one. <laughs> right. Let's do another 30-minute Twelfth Night. <laughs> Having done 18 of them for high school students, I'm now working with the Folger to move on to introduce these to an even younger audience, grades three through five, which would be ages nine, 10, 11 kind of thing. And in doing so, I can always make new choices. What would be your most memorable moment working with the high school students on a 30-minute Shakespeare play? Must be a lot. There are quite a few. There's one that comes to mind. It was one of those art imitating life moments. We were doing Henry IV Part One, and because I work with large classrooms, often you'll have more than one Henry, more than one Romeo, more than one Juliet. Someone will play one of those roles in one scene and then they'll switch hats and somebody else will be playing them. So one of my Prince Hal's, near the end of the project, this was a group of 12th graders, he got expelled from school for some transgression. And then at the 11th hour, through a lot of pleading and bargaining with the parents in the school, he was reinstated at the last minute just in time to come into the show. And there's a scene in the play where Hal is speaking to King Henry and he's contrite and he's telling the king that he's going to make up for it and prove himself. And it was so clear to me that he had just had this conversation <laughs> with his parents and with the school. It was just coming out in Shakespeare's words, but it was, you know, it was something that had just happened to him. And it was in that way incredibly believable because he was essentially reliving a conversation he had just had. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) And and I think it's the sun speech, I will be the sun. That's correct, yeah. It's a perfect example of art imitating life. So you have 18 different scripts from 18 different plays, I'm assuming. Yes. So which one is the most popular? Well, Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, and Midsummer Night's Dream are probably the three most popular Hamlet and Julius Caesar are also popular. There are a lot of the more minor plays that I really like that don't sell as much. You know, I like to recommend As You Like It or Much Ado About Nothing or Othello, which is sometimes taught in schools, but not much. Speaking of Othello, and another example of something memorable to me, I worked with a group of ninth graders with Othello. So the range in size and shape of these students at that age is extreme. And I had a very small Othello. He was skinny and barely over five feet tall. But he was one of the most powerful Othellos I've ever seen. He owned Othello's power and rage. It was just an example of how it's what's in your spirit and not in your physical body that matters when you're playing a character. Sometimes the size matters, but the size of the heart is the most important, I guess. You know, with the 30-minute Shakespeare series, I will write down stage directions just to get the ball rolling. But really, the best stage directions are always what come from the students. I mean, we were doing Henry IV Part One, where the two travelers get robbed. One of my kids just leapt high in the air and jumped into the other traveler's arms in fear. And that's the kind of thing that <laughs> I never would have suggested that it was a brilliant choice. The happiest and most successful moments in all these plays are when the students make decisions that they come from themselves. They have the spirit that will bring 
comedy and tragedy. I mean, a lot of people in high school haven't experienced as many things as older people, but their emotional lives are as rich, if not richer. And so as a result, Shakespeare gives them a vehicle for getting some of that emotional energy out. And that's really the beauty of theater and the beauty of Shakespeare. The 30-minute Shakespeare series is a resource for teachers and teaching artists. Where would teachers and teaching artists get access? Yeah, the books are available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and whatever outlets that sell books. They're also available as a downloadable PDF from 30minuteshakespeare.com. That's 30minuteshakespeare.com. The advantage to the PDF is that you can print it out for an entire group. You don't have to flatten it and photocopy it. That's only available from the 30minuteshakespeare.com website. Now, these books are available on Kindle also, but for this particular purpose, Kindle is not necessarily satisfactory because everybody has to have a Kindle. And if teachers have access to the books, I'm assuming that performance rights are not reserved so that they can freedom to produce those 30-minute Shakespeare pieces without having to pay royalties. That's correct. At first, we said something to the effect of, if you buy five books, you have unlimited performance rights. But if you buy the PDF, you just have to buy one of them. I'm pretty lax about it. I mean, pretty much buy the book. You can do whatever you want with it. Probably the most valuable part to me is when I meet teachers who tell me how much they and their students have enjoyed using these resources. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's an incredible resource for a classroom. So, Nick, you brought in a speech for us from Act 2, Scene 1 of As You Like It. It's one of my personal faves. You want to talk about why you chose this speech? In the 30-minute Shakespeare anthology, basically I took one scene from each of the plays that I had put out in paperback. And within that scene, I took a monologue that may have been cut for time and I re-expanded it out to its full length. So that students would have a chance to use that monologue in auditions and competitions also, just as a closer study of the text, this particular monologue, the Duke Seigneur's monologue, speaks to me for a couple of reasons. One, the subject matter centering around sweet or the uses of adversity is something that speaks to me. And another aspect of the subject matter is that of nature. And the two go together. What would seem to be adversity in the court does not seem to be adversity in nature. And I live on a farm with my wife, Joanne. We live on a 125-acre farm, and I've always liked walking in the woods. And so it speaks to me. And what I tell students and what I write in the anthology is if you can find something that resonates with you emotionally or find something in the monologue that resonates with you emotionally, then you have got something of great value because... Ultimately, we're conveying a feeling through the words. The second reason I picked the monologue is I, I just like the way it reads, the rhythm, the sound of the words. In the anthology, after each of the monologues, I have a little section of monologue notes. And my personal approach is, I guess you would say, organic, which is how do the words sound? Do they have a warm sound? Do they have a choppy sound? Do they have a cold sound? What kind of rhythm is it? Does the rhythm change up? Is there a turning point in the monologue where suddenly... The character has a revelation or a change of heart. Most of the time, I like the students to start with just reading it out loud with no comprehension. Just try reading it a few times. Just don't worry what, they, what the words mean. And then you can later go back and do a closer reading. Anyway, I took my own advice and read my own notes. Came up with a couple of little things that I don't know whether other people would have done them, but they made sense to me. And we can discuss them briefly after I read the monologue. Yeah, let's hear it. I'd love to hear you read it. This is Nick Newland doing Duke Senior from As You Like It. Act 2, Scene 1. Now, my co-mates and brothers in exile, hath not old custom made this life more sweet than that of painted pomp? Are not these woods more free from peril than the envious court? Here feel we not the penalty of Adam. The season's difference 
as the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter's wind, which when it bites and blows upon my body, even till I shrink with cold, I smile and say, this is no flattery. These are counselors that feelingly persuade me what I am. Sweet are the uses of adversity, which, like the toad, ugly and venomous, wears yet a precious jewel in his head. And this, our life, exempt from public haunt, finds tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. Lovely. What I was talking about before, about the beats, when I was going through this, Mm -hmm. there were a couple of times where I put a line to make it a a triplicate. And I'll tell you which ones those were. That feelingly persuade me what I am. I decided that those three words were to be kind of emphasized and jumped upon like a motif. And so, as in music, a motif repeats. And so, again, once I got to the final Mm -hmm. line, sermons in stones and good in everything. So this is just an example of my own choice. I chose it because it jumped out at me. Right. And I also like there are certain things or phrases that can act as kind of touchstones for the piece itself and therefore can be emphasized. What I am good in everything. So you mess around with it, you try different ways, and it becomes your own. Well, clearly you've used the text to your advantage in speaking it. Interestingly, you changed the rhythm up a little bit around line nine, even till I shrink with cold, and you took a nice little pause there, and I smile and say, this is no flattery. I'm interested in that line, this is no flattery, these are counselors that feelingly persuade me what I am, which is uh, the what I am we're referring to, that's the lines 10 and 11. What is he saying there? To me, he's saying that the wind, the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter's wind is a teacher. Nature is a teacher, and we are nature. You know, when I was looking at this, it helps to go to the dictionary. Students don't tend to use dictionaries that much, but they're really cool. It's amazing what happens when you go to the dictionary. So I looked up the word adversity, and it means to turn, to turn around. I kind of imagine Duke Sr., instead of turning away from the wind, he turns towards it, and it feels good. He's like on the prow of the Titanic, you know? I, am I was going to say, you're Leonardo DiCaprio on the Titanic. It feels alive, and his arms are out, and he's feeling it. it. It feels good. When something is hard, instead of turning away from it, you turn towards it. Thereby going to the dictionary, we get a meaning. Absolutely. What I love is that you look at the dictionary, you not only get the meaning of the word, you get a physical action to go with that meaning. And I think that is exactly why we would mm-hmm. do something like mm-hmm. that as actors. Obviously, sweet are the uses of adversity is in the center of this speech. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful phrase. The sentiment is essentially you make lemonade out of lemons, right? Correct. But it's so much better than that one. It's just a beautiful image. It's absolutely gorgeous. And towards the end, one of the things that you did when you spoke it is, you, as you said, you did, you slowed it down on what I am and good in everything. And it gave a little bit the feel of a sermon, the feel of someone who is speaking truth to a group of people. Well, yes. In the monologue notes, I tell the reader, he's giving a pep talk to himself, but he's also giving a pep talk to his men. Duke Sr. is a leader, and he leads by example. 
So if he feels something, his men will too. I'm with you on the sentiment of the speech. I, I love walking in the woods and the contact with nature. It brings to mind Thoreau and a long line of others like him. And the tone of it, you talked about the tone earlier, the tone of the speech is really mellow. Right. We talk about how words sound. Some words sound sharp and some sound sweet. I talk about coloring words a lot. Coloring words means kind of like onomatopoeia, but not quite. It means the sound of the word has, a, as you say, a tone. So here we can color contrasting words and give warmth to words like co-mates, brothers, old custom, life, and sweet. How do you give warmth to words? The voice is expressive. If you stretch the vowels a little and soften the consonant, the word brother sounds soft and welcoming. Yeah. If, by contrast, you speak with a more choppy and clipped tone, you can similarly color words that describe court life with a colder sound. You can speak the words painted pomp, peril, and envious court with a more clipped and frosty voice. So there, you know, you have the warmth of the woods versus the cold of the court. Throughout the monologue book, I keep going back to how the words sound because to me it's music and words have sound. It's a symphony of words. It has mo repeating motifs and just the way an instrument has either a harsh or mellow sound. So do words, especially if you color them. Especially if you use them. And that's what we're definitely all about here at the State of Shakespeare, using the words to yeah. convey meaning. I have two last things for you. One is the in line 17, sermons and stones and good in everything. You use the monosyllables there and you slowed it down like you said. And often some books will publish everything as one word. Other books will publish everything as two words. I prefer it as two words. What do you think? I like two words too because it allows the word thing to stand on its own and everything. It ties back into what I am. In, in my particular text, it was in one word. And so I had three words, what, I am and good in everything. So for the purposes of my motif, having everything as one word allows for a more repetition. But on the other hand, and this is an important point, one of the things that is interesting to me about Shakespeare's iambic pentameter is studying when it is different. Yeah. And there's an extra beat. Because some people say, oh, well, you know, he made a mistake there. <laughs> <laughs> no, he did not. Majority of the time when I study where there's an extra beat, and this is something my colleague Michael Toledo of the Folger taught me a long time ago, which is ba-bum, 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 ba-bum. It's a heartbeat. And when you are in an emotional state, your heart skips a beat. And so when you have an extra beat or one beat that is removed, something is happening with your heart. Something is happening with your emotions. And so I always look at where the rhythm varies as a clue for what is happening emotionally with the character. Without a doubt. And finally, I just want to ask you, with the 30-minute Shakespeare, you work with inner-city youth mostly, is my understanding, in the That's area. How do they respond to a speech like this that is probably fairly far from their experience? I would say that probably in the D.C. public school system, kids have less experience in full-on nature than Duke Sr. has here. But they probably have just as much experience with adversity. Even if they haven't gone out into the woods, everybody has felt the wind on his or her face. Everybody has felt the cold. And that's nature. And so what I do is I, I find commonality of experience, and we all feel the cold, and we all feel pain. And we all have to deal with that. So no matter where you grew up or what age you are, and that includes elementary school students, we all feel the cold, 
We all feel pain. We all have to figure out a way to turn either away from it or towards it. I love the idea of turning towards it, turning around. Nick Newland, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. It's been marvelous having you on the state of Shakespeare. Thank you. I enjoyed it quite a lot as well. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to the state of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.